Olakai is a Hawaiian-inspired footwear brand that has made it their mission to make the most comfortable shoes for all life's adventures. They have been asked for years by people who love their shoes, look, you guys do a great job, when are you finally going to make golf shoes? Last year they said, okay, you twisted our arms and they finally did it. What happened? They went out and made some of the most comfortable golf shoes ever made. They took the DNA from their normal shoes that makes them so comfortable, including dual density, removable and washable footbeds, a foldable heel so you can transition from course to clubhouse seamlessly, and they added reinforcement and soft spikes to enhance golf performance. They have three great styles in their men's line. Two sporty styles, including the Kapalua Blues and the Wele Whites. How do I know that so well? Well, they sent me a pair, one of each, and they are not just comfortable, they are gorgeous shoes. You can wear them on the course, you can wear them with khakis, with jeans, with shorts. They really go anywhere, and I've gotten a ton of compliments on them. And they also have one classic style with waterproof leather. Get this, they also have two women's styles as well. The golf shoes haven't even been out that long. They already have thousands of reviews, and they have a 4.8 star rating. So don't wait any longer, okay? Try out a pair for yourself today at olakai.com. That is O-L-U-K-A-I.com. In the spring of 1846, Tom Morris and his wife Agnes had their first child. It was a son. They named him Tom Morris Jr. And almost four years later, in April 1850, that child died. His parents buried him at the Cathedral Cemetery in their hometown on the east coast of Scotland, overlooking the North Sea at St. Andrews. And this was far more common at the time, of course, to lose a young child, but it was also the case that the longer the child lived, you know, if it survived through infancy, the better chance he or she had to make it to adulthood. And you could make the argument, too, that the longer the child lived, the more painful the loss was for everyone around them, especially the parents. You can still read the inscription on his tombstone in that cathedral cemetery, although if you were visiting, you could be forgiven for missing it because it exists in the shadow of the largest monument in that cemetery, which belongs to a man who was born one year later, almost to the day, to the same parents, in the same town, and he had the same name too, Tom Morris Jr. That was also pretty common at the time, to reuse a name like that, under tragic circumstances. And though he would survive his childhood, the second Tom Morris Jr. wouldn't have a very long stay on Earth either. And you might be saying, okay, this is an awfully somber way to start a podcast, very bleak, talking about two premature deaths, to which I would respond that you simply cannot tell the story of this man, young Tom Morris, like we're doing today, much less his father, old Tom, without a pretty generous helping of sadness, tragedy, and suffering. It is very easy in cases like these with the really old names in golf for them to be, you know, colorless to us, confined to these historical lists like, hey, let's take a quick look at Wikipedia for the first few Open Championship winners. And you rattle off names like Old Tom Morris, Young Tom Morris, Willie Park, Mongo Park, Jamie Anderson, Bob Ferguson, these Scottish professionals who lived and died 100 years and more before our time. And unless you start digging, they're stuck on that page. Maybe you have a vague visual or two of an old bearded man. Or you think about a windy Lynx course and gray Scottish weather that comes into your head. But that's about it. Now, as time moves on with those lists, those Wikipedia type lists, you start to get a more concrete picture. Okay, I've heard of Walter Hagen. I've seen pictures of Ben Hogan. I've seen clips of Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas. I watched Nick Faldo play when I was young. I've seen him announce golf for years. And then by the time you get to names like Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy... It conjures up a thousand memories, and they're vibrant, and they're alive. But the beauty of history is that as long as you had some form of written language, and obviously in the 1800s in Scotland and England there was plenty of that, you have a chance to fill in the blanks. You can color in the page, and you can make the names on that list come alive. But you almost wonder if it should come with one of those advisory stickers that they used to have on CDs when I was young, that, you know, if you start diving into this stuff... Be warned, you might feel something. There is not going to be much empathy or sadness from reading a name on the internet, but if they start to take shape as human beings, you better watch out. Reminds me of a sign that greets visitors at the catacombs in Paris. The catacombs are this massive underground tomb with millions of bones. It's eerie, it's dimly lit, and before you go in, you see this sign, and pardon my French pronunciation, I don't speak French, but it says, Arrête, 
Say you see the Empire de Mort, which means stop. This is the Empire of the Dead. Enter those grounds, start to learn about those names on those lists. And guess what? You might have an emotion or two you did not anticipate. You should expect some tragedy. You should expect to be confronted by the full range of the human experience and all that it entails. And you get plenty of that with young Tom Morris, but not exclusively. It's not all sadness, because while he was alive and while he was playing golf, this man lit that world on fire. And in a few short years of playing, he exceeded all his contemporaries. He exceeded his father, who was and probably remains the most famous human being in golf before the year 1900. And young Tom not only covered himself in glory, but he transformed golf. His style and his reputation were such that he became a celebrity all over Scotland and England. And the way he popularized and altered the sport is so impactful and so decisive that in my mind, it is not remotely hyperbolic to say that the only two people you can compare this guy to in the entire history of golf are Arnold Palmer and Tiger Woods. He doesn't just succeed. He doesn't just win. He shifts the paradigm of what golf is. As a quick illustration of that at this point, golf was a predominantly Scottish sport. When young Tom entered his prime, there were 22 courses in all of England. By 1900s, that number in England is almost 1,000. Now, I don't mean to lay this growth entirely at the feet of young Tom Morris. There was a lot happening in the world of golf to make it possible, and you could never reduce it to just one person. But if you want to isolate the one man who had the most influence, whose every move was covered so breathlessly by the sports press, including the London sports press, by the way, that it couldn't help popularize the game everywhere on that whole island, and by extension the entire world, and who redefined the possibilities of being a so-called professional golfer, it was young Tom Morris, a man who never lived to see his 25th birthday. In 1864, when young Tom was 12 years old, his father brought him to his first professional tournament in Perth. Willie Park from Edinburgh, old Tom's great rival. And by the way, let me say here, you can get a little tangled up in what to call the Tom Morrises. Do you call young Tom, Tom Morris Jr.? Some people call him Tommy to distinguish him. I'm just going to go with what seems to be the most popular convention both then and now, which is to say old Tom for the father, young Tom for the son. So old Tom's great rival, Willie Park, he sees father and son together and he takes a shot. Park was kind of a brash, cocky guy, not afraid to get in your face. And he sort of sneers and he says, for why have you brought your laddie, Tom? And old Tom was quick with his reply. He says, you'll see for why soon enough. And he would, they all would. Because while the story of young Tom Morris is laden with tragedy, with sadness, and the kind of heartbreak that can be really tough to reckon with, the reason we know about it, the reason it makes us sad, and will continue doing so for anybody who studies this guy, is because while it was a short life, it was a scintillating life. And if there's any consolation to dying young, and who knows if there is, maybe there's not, but if there is, it might be to have lived as the greatest pure winner, bar none, in the long history of golf. It's uh, the old parish record for St Andrews, 1821. Looking at the entry, it tells that Thomas Mitchell, son of uh, John, who was a, a weaver of St Andrews, and his wife, Jean, had a son born on the 16th of June and baptised on the 24th of June. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Local Knowledge. And for the research on this podcast, I relied very heavily on the book Monarch of the Green, Young Tom Morris, Pioneer of Modern Golf. That's by Stephen Proctor, who was also very helpful to me during this process. And I enjoyed his book immensely. There are other books about Young Tom, Old Tom, and no disrespect to any of them, but in this case, this is the one I chose to read. There is one book that exists out there that I haven't read. It's called Tommy's Honor by Kevin Cook. It was made into a movie, which I also haven't seen. And it's the story of Old Tom and Young Tom, and by all accounts, it's very good. But the reason I didn't read it for this podcast is because it belongs to a genre I don't quite know how to explain. I'm not sure if, you know, historical fiction quite does the trick. But there is a certain amount in that book, as I understand it, that's reimagined there. And you can see why when you read Proctor's book, which is a straight history. You know, we only know what we know. And if there's speculation, Proctor's going to indicate that it's speculation. And he faced a difficult task, Proctor did, which he outlined in an author's note at the end of his book, which is that while... Yeah, there are contemporary accounts of this guy. It's nothing like modern media, you know, where if you're 150 years from now, 
and you have access to everything ever written about Tiger Woods or everything ever filmed, you're going to have a treasure trove about the guy, his personality, everything. Whereas back then you have these newspaper accounts, but they're pretty dry. They tell the story of who won, who lost, what they scored on certain holes, but beyond that, there's really nothing personal or colorful there. You know, young Tom was not a great letter writer, which is often the thing that rescues biographers with these pre-1900 figures. I mean, the simple fact of the matter is Proctor, through all his research, was barely able to dig up any actual verbatim quotes from his main subject. That makes things tough, doesn't it? It also underscores the fact that you know, he did a pretty good job here painting this interesting portrait where largely what he has to go on is reports from young Tom's contemporaries in future biographies. And that's what I mean when I talk about the other book, Tommy's Honor by Kevin Cook. You can easily see why he takes the approach of, well, maybe I'll just add a few things in. We'll, we'll imagine the dialogue here and makes this more of a story than a history. I am interested primarily in the history, though. And before we get to Perth and Young Tom's first tournament, there's a larger question of how do we get here in the first place? Who is Young Tom? You know, who is Old Tom? How did they get involved in golf? And the answer is that the big break for the Morris family and for all their future descendants came when Old Tom was a young man. He and his future wife, Nancy, grew up in St. Andrews. Both of them were children of Weavers, which was a booming business at the time. And when I say booming, I mean that there was great demand for it, not that the job was easy or especially profitable. They were poor and they were overworked. St. Andrews itself had fallen on hard times in the early 1800s. Obviously, the Royal Ancient Club was formed in 1754, and this was still a major golfing destination, but the town itself was stricken by poverty. The cathedral was in ruins. Aside from the handful of rich people there, this is not an especially prosperous place at the time. Old Tom learned the game of golf from his father, because, you know, even the working class would play on St. Andrews. And as he grew up and the Industrial Revolution increasingly took hold, all the jobs his father does, you know, his wife's family, same thing, they were all becoming mechanized. And what had been a tough existence before was growing into something that was impossible. And that's when he got what you might consider the big break of his lifetime. And again, of his son's lifetime, his son's son's lifetime, etc., which is that he secured an apprenticeship with Alan Robertson, who was both the golf ball maker in the town and widely considered the best golfer in the world at the time. Scotland's so-called king of clubs. This was the first guy ever to break 80 at St. Andrews, and at age 18, Old Tom got to work with him, and it completely changed his career path and his life. Now, Alan Robertson was the kind of guy who had a reputation for being, again, the greatest player in the country, but the way he preserved that was somewhat novel. If a younger, better player came along and challenged him, he simply wouldn't play him. He dodged almost everybody he could. He far preferred the security of foursomes matches. And for his partner, he chose what you could think of as like his greatest security blanket, the best golfer he knew, and that was old Tom. They played together often. They almost never lost. And this was an era where overwhelmingly the most common form of competitive play was either a singles match or a foursomes match. And the big matches were staked by rich gentlemen. There was a good amount of wagering, that kind of thing. And as they kept winning and old Tom's skill became more important, his reputation grew, not just in St. Andrews, but all over Scotland. Now, in 1848, something interesting happened. And for context, you have to know that the balls at this time were called featheries, and they were exactly what they sounded like, duck feathers or goose feathers wrapped up in leather sewn together. They were expensive, they broke quickly, they were oblong, so putting with them was incredibly tough. They took forever to make. You could work all day, one person who was trained, and only make four of them. And basically, this was just not good equipment. And it was so pricey that it kept golf pretty exclusively a rich person's sport. Things changed dramatically when the gutta percha ball came around. This was made from the sap of a tree that grows in Malaysia. And to put it succinctly, it wasn't longer. That would come with the rubber core balls a few years later. But it was much cheaper, and it was almost indestructible. So this was a massive innovation because it made golf much more affordable. But it was also very bad news for people like Alan Robertson, whose business was making the featheries. And he would do these crazy things, like he would hold a demonstration where he would purposely top a gut approach a ball and say, look, it doesn't go up in the air. And he'd pay people to go around his course collecting the gut approach balls so he could destroy them. 
And one day in 1848, his apprentice Old Tom was out playing with Featheries, as was mandated. And they all broke, because that's what they did. So to finish the round, he did the unthinkable. He played with a gutta-percha ball, and he loved it. And as it happened that day, it was his bad luck that, of course, Alan Robertson came on the course and he saw him. They had a massive argument. It seems like Old Tom was fired or he quit. The sources vary a little bit on that one. But we do know he set out on his own. And then three years later, when his son, young Tom, was just three months old, he took an offer to go design, build, and run the course at Preswick, which is on the opposite coast of Scotland, the west coast, just south of Troon, which is where young Tom grew up until 1863, 12 years later when they came back to St. Andrews and old Tom took over as the greenskeeper there, a job that he held until the turn of the century when he was a very old man. Now, we know very little about young Tom in these first 12 years of his life while he was at Presswick. We know a lot more about old Tom. He designed the course. It was a 12-hole course, and starting in 1860, it would host the first 12 Open Championships. I think it's worth taking a quick detour to explain exactly what it meant to be a professional in golf at this time, to be someone like old Tom. It was, on the practical level, a job that entailed a few things. You made clubs and balls, you caddied. By the way, golf bags were you know well off into the future, so caddying meant you literally carried all eight or nine clubs for a player. Or maybe you were a custodian of the links. And the reality at that time was that if you were a blue-collar person, a laborer, you didn't have a ton of time to play golf or money. They did play, but it was the so-called gentleman golfers who were the best amateurs because these were rich people who could play all the time. They didn't have to work as much, if at all. And for them, it could become sort of like a full-time hobby. But coinciding with this class of rich amateur golfer were the pros, the men who were at their service, their caddies. And it so happened that the caddies and the club makers and ball makers and custodians, they played even more than the gentlemen. And so typically they became the best players of all. Old Tom Morris is a great example here. His reputation by the 1840s, long before his children were born, is that he might be even better than his mentor, Alan Robertson. He might be the best golfer in all of Scotland, which means, again, he's the best golfer in the entire world. But imagine the class situation here. These men like Morris are coexisting very closely with the gentlemen, with the rich guys, and to some degree, you know, they're looked down on as the help. Now, Old Tom was a incredibly successful golf pro. He made a great amount of money for the time, you know, more than the average worker by far. And of course, when you're very good at the game, you enjoy a certain status, but you still have that disparity, the sense of two different social classes mingling, you know, and it wasn't like he was going to marry one of their sisters. He was not going to be included on a fox hunt, things like that. At places like the RNA, he couldn't even go in the clubhouse. It was absurd sounding, but if he wanted to talk to somebody, he had to tap on the window and they would come to him. And he was the highest status pro. Keep that in mind. With the rank and file, the people who weren't old Tom, there were all these stereotypes. You know, they're drunks, they're cheats, they're unreliable. Basically, they're not up to the esteemed level of the gentlemen who are the soul of the sport. Except the problem is that, by and large, the gentlemen aren't as good as them. And so, at least on the golf course, this somewhat levels the playing field. But here's how Proctor puts it. He says, quote, They weren't called professionals because they were the best players in the game. The word branded them as members of an inferior class. Gentlemen did not have to scrape for a living the way these working class men did. End quote. And what you have to know is that a professional kind of game is about to emerge, something that looks at least remotely like what we have today. And the engine of that, you can't state this emphatically enough, the engine of that is gambling. Two rich guys want a challenge match, but they want to beat the other, so what do they do? Well, they make it a foursomes match, and one of them gets old Tom Morris on his side. And if they win, old Tom gets a cut of the bet, but if they lose, he still gets a cut because that's the price you pay to have him on your team. But as you might imagine, it gets to a point where this is not good enough anymore. These big gamblers start to say, well, my two guys at Musselburg, which is the big club in Edinburgh, rival to St. Andrews, they can beat your two guys, and I'm willing to put 20 pounds sterling on it. The other guy says, you're on. And suddenly they're not gambling on their own matches anymore. They're putting up the pros. And the pros get a cut, and it's a bigger cut if they win again. And it turns out that these matches are pretty good entertainment. They're pretty fun to watch. People come out to watch them, sometimes by the thousands. And the profile of the best pros, guys like Roberts, Old Tom, Willie Park, these profiles rise. And suddenly the golf clubs in Scotland and the new ones around England, 
They want them. They want the best golfers, these big names. They want them to come play at their clubs. It gets to be a point of pride. You know, we got old Tom. So they host tournaments at their spring and autumn meetings. Remember in the summer, even on Lynxland, the grass is too high. There's no way to mow an entire course at the time, so there's less golf played then. And at these annual meetings, they put up money so the best pros will come. You know, the advent of appearance fees. And they hold them on different weekends so the schedules don't conflict. And suddenly, guess what? We've got a professional tour. And because it's a logistical nightmare to have a match play tournament, it takes too long. They use something called stroke play so everybody can compete against each other. This is nothing like the tours we have today, obviously. But you can start to see it take shape. And it is based first on gambling. That is the main motivation here. And the secondary thing you'd have to say is the emerging celebrity of great golfers. And for the record, the reason this took so long to develop, you know, golf is 400 years old at this point, it's not new, is that before then, pretty simply, they didn't have the affordable railroads to transport even common people cheaply and quickly. So, the year 1849 comes. This is two years before young Tom is born, and there is a high-stakes match organized that comes to be known as the Great Foursome. And it's the most famous golf match in history, I would say, before 1850. This pits Old Tom and Alan Robertson of St. Andrews. Notice how even though they had a falling out, you know, they're still they're still sticking together for these matches. There's money to be made. And their opponents are going to be Willie and Jamie Dunn of Musselburgh, the again, the rival club in Edinburgh. The stakes were set at 400 pounds. And just the winner's share would be more than the annual salary of an average worker in Scotland. 36 holes at each course, then a finale of 36 holes at North Berwick, a neutral course. The fans were loud, they would heckle. Now, these are not like modern golf audiences. Bookies are shouting wagers in the fairways. Money's changing hands. It's like a prize fight, you know, in Proctor's words. That's the best comparison here. It is not the state affair you might think of when you think of early golf. The Duns win at their home course, the blowout. Old Tom and Robertson win barely at St. Andrews. And at North Berwick, the St. Andrews team came back from four down to win a dramatic match on the 36th hole. And this was huge news everywhere, across the golf world, across the whole sports world. And by this time, it's not just the Scottish people gambling on it, it's people all over England. It's become widespread. You know, newspapers are starting for the first time to send reporters up to actually cover these matches. And the rise of the professional isn't hard to understand. They're more fun to watch. They're better. And this is the context of the world, especially the golf world, that young Tom was born into. And that world was made, of course, in large part by his father. And other great golfers are starting to want in because they can see that there's money in this thing. Great example is Willie Park. We talked about him earlier. A few years after this, age 21, Willie Park took the step of actually publishing a challenge in the sporting life. He said, I'll put up my own money. I'll take on Robertson, Morris, Willie Dunn. I'll take on anybody. No one answered him. Remember, especially Robertson, he's not answering any challenges. So what did Willie Park do? He went to the Royal and Ancient Autumn meeting and he confronted his enemies face to face. And by doing that, he got his match with Old Tom and he beat Old Tom. And when the first Open Championship was held at Presswick, Old Tom's home course... Willie Park beat him there, too, to win what is now looked at as the first-ever major championship. So the Open Championship, you know, this year it's about to hold its 151st installment. It came about because a man named Colonel James Fairley, and this was the guy who hired Old Tom to work at Presswick, he picked up on the growing popularity of the professional game, and he said, we needed a tournament to decide the best of the best among the pros, and that was the origin of the Open Championship. First one was held in 1860. And it's interesting to think how far advanced sports were in the UK at this time. I mean, in America, you know, Civil War was about to begin. Baseball existed, but it wasn't organized, really. Meanwhile, here's golf starting to take on a kind of modern form. Same thing was happening in soccer, by the way. And fairly for this event, he bought a belt of red Moroccan leather had a large silver buckle embossed with these golf scenes, had the Presswick coat of arms, and this was going to be the first trophy. And if you won it, you got to keep it for a year, and if you won it three times, it was yours permanently. When Willie Park won that first one, you can imagine 
the intense disappointment of old Tom. This was his course. He literally made it, and he got beat. Now, what we do know about young Tom in these early years are things you can infer that are pretty obvious. Clearly, he spent a lot of time with his dad playing golf at Presswick. Clearly, he was a prodigy. We know that because of the money old Tom earned, he was able to send young Tom and his brother James, who was called Joff, not just to normal public school, but they also went to the Air Academy. That's A-Y-R, a very prestigious school. Hopefully I'm not mangling the pronunciation. But clearly they had more ambitions for him than to simply follow in his father's footsteps as, you know, a working custodian of all things golf. And now we come back to Perth. He's just 12 years old. Old Tom brings him to the Perth Open Tournament with the idea that he's going to play in the amateur event. But the organizers are not having that. Remember, a lot of the amateurs, most of them actually are gentlemen. And by this point, even though the greater world is meeting young Tom for the first time, he already has a reputation as a budding great golfer, at least among those people in the know. And his dad's reputation is sterling. Okay, yeah, he lost that first Open Championship to Willie Park, but he won the next two. Almost won a third in a row to capture the belt permanently. Willie Park beat him there. But that year, the year of the Perth Open in 1864, he won the Open Championship again. So these amateur gentlemen understand that this 12-year-old is probably pretty good if his dad's bringing him along. He could, he could beat them. They have no interest in that. And what they said was, well, he's your son. So technically, you know, basically he's a professional. But the professionals were not having it either. They ruled he wasn't old enough to play. And instead, what they did is they organized a singles match between young Tom and a boy named William Grieg. Grieg had just won a youth competition there, and he was somebody who would go on to be a great player in far-flung places like Singapore. Lost his foot later in life and kept playing anyway with a prosthesis. This guy was no slouch. He was tough. Stakes were set at five pounds, and the place they played was known as the North Inch of Perth. And if you'll bear with me, I want to take a little detour into Scottish history. You know, there's a lot of ugly stuff in those early days of the clans going back, you know, way before this time. Constant warfare. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, you might remember the Red Wedding. That is based on a very real incident in Scotland. And so in the late 1300s, there were these two warring clans. and They were at each other's throats. You know, murder raids, basically constant to the point of destabilizing the entire kingdom. So King Robert II decided he needed to finish it for good. And the way he decided to do that was to say, okay... Each side, pick 30 of your best fighters. We're going to organize a fight. And it ends when one side has completely killed off the other side. And the winners get what they want. And that's what they did at the North Inch of Perth. They were inside a pen, the king watching. One of the clans lost 19 of their men, but apparently killed all but one of the enemy. The last guy swam away, managed to escape. So, 500 years later, they're playing golf there. On April 14th, crowd they drew was bigger than the one that had watched the professional tournament there were hundreds on hand so that shows you kind of you know where the reputation of young tom was at and we don't know the score of that match but we do know that young tom won and a newspaper account says the following quote the perth tournament of 1864 will ever be kept in remembrance as the first occasion on which the admirable Crichton of young golf young tom morris engaged in public contest End quote. That Crichton reference is talking about a local hero. You know, it's basically saying, you know, young Tom is the Michael Jordan of golf. Very high compliment. And keep in mind that, you know, this is a contemporary account. It's not looking back years later and going, this was the first time this great golfer played. It is somebody at the time going, this man is going to be huge and we're going to remember this. This Perth tournament as the first time he ever played. And he was right. Here I, what year is it now? 2023? Here I am. I'm still talking about it. And you can also see here something that is consistent throughout the entire life of young Tom, which is that when people see him in person, when they watch him play, they are moved. They are awed. And again, this is so far back in history that it's easy to lose sight of the idea that young Tom was a real person. But if you can, think of him in the flesh and know that for people who love golf, watching him was almost like a spiritual experience. He's one of these guys, and we've seen others throughout history, not many, but we've seen a few, where there is magic in him. You know, Tiger Woods, Seve Ballesteros, even at 12 years old, he's like this. Now, I mentioned that he went to the Air Academy, and I think that is worth emphasizing, because, you know, old Tom never went to a school like that. Nobody in his family, as many generations back as you want to go, would ever have done anything close to that. 
This is the equivalent of something you hear a lot in America. You know, somebody from a poor background who was the first in their family to go to college. That's the kind of thing old Tom's success afforded him. The chance to elevate his children into a different social class. And in a place as intensely stratified as Great Britain, that's a pretty big deal. And it puts young Tom in a little bit of an interesting position because while his dad is intensely respected, you know, has a large degree of fame, he is still, in his capacity as a professional, seen as second class to the gentlemen who play golf. Doesn't matter that he's better than them, you know, might even make more income than some of them who live off family money, he's still thought of as inferior. Again, you know, we said before, he can't even go into the clubhouse at the RNA. You gotta go tap the door and somebody's gonna come out to him. Well, young Tom is not necessarily a gentleman, but unlike his father, he doesn't have an internship to make balls or, or clubs or to be a custodian or to caddy. That working class element of the golf professional is missing from his resume, and it's because his father has a lot of money. You know, in fact, there's not really much indication of him ever pursuing any job. There was a year where he was in Edinburgh. It's documented in a few kind of secondary ways, and maybe he was on the path to some kind of career there, but we don't know. What we do know is that when he grows up, and, you know, put grows up in quotes, because we're talking about, you know, age 16, 17, all he does is golf for money. Doesn't work in the associated fields. Just golfs and earns a profit. So what that means, and I think this is maybe the true foremost legacy of young Tom it means that he was the first modern golf professional, and certainly the first wildly successful modern golf professional. And isn't that an interesting place to be? Because this is still predominantly a gentleman's game. But not only does young Tom not really think he's below them, he's never even worked for them the way his dad would have, with the exception that, you know, probably he worked in his dad's shop as a little kid helping out. But as he enters his prime, He's never carried clubs. He's never made golf balls for them. And in fact, he's friends with a lot of them. And his unbelievable skill on the course bridges the wealth gap and makes it so these people want to be around him. Which brings us to his personality. And as with other elements of the story and of history at the time, we do run into some roadblocks here. One big problem as I see it is that at this time, the people that were writing any kind of descriptive writing, you know, so forget the newspapers, they were just writing results, but the people who would have been describing young Tom in their diaries or in letters, first of all, it doesn't happen often, but when it does, the authors are themselves largely gentlemen. And if you've ever read up on any figures of this time, particularly in the UK, the ethos of the gentleman obscures absolutely everything. They had a vested interest in their own class, and they write about each other in highly complimentary, sometimes flowery language, you know? He was of the finest sort, a man of great pedigree and strength, yet possessed of an admirable humility, and on and on and on. My personal opinion is that this stuff becomes almost meaningless. You know, if somebody was an alcoholic or a womanizer or just a jerk, you're not going to hear about it in this time and place, especially if they were wealthy or wealthy adjacent, like young Tom. So you do get some of that. The other thing you get is people long after his death being interviewed about him for books and things like that, you know, let's say you're 70 years old and you're asked about this great player who died at age 24 decades ago. You're probably not inclined to say anything negative, right? So, memory and celebrity and an early death and gentleman's culture, they all work against the nitty-gritty details, whatever they were. But I'm more interested in the stuff that slips through the cracks. And one of those, and you hear it a few times from a lot of different sources, is that young Tom is pretty cocky. He's got a self-assured attitude, would be the nice way to put it. But he'll do things like he'll hit a putt, and before it's even in the hole, he'll tell the caddy, pick it up, laddie. Not in a mean or condescending way, but he's got some swagger. When I read that story, it made me laugh because Jordan Spieth did the same thing with Michael Greller after holding a bunker shot. It sounds like that same kind of bravado. And he dressed young Tom in the fashion of what you would call a dandy. He wears tailored suits, silk ties, he's got a pocket watch. And he keeps a thin mustache in what's considered a kind of a hip Victorian fashion among young men. And maybe his defining clothing piece was what they called a Glen Gary bonnet hat. Almost a trademark, you know, like Ricky Fowler wearing the orange jumpsuit when he was younger or Payne Stewart in his plus fours. And young Tom's style of play fed into this. There was a tendency among pros at that time to play a safe, cautious game. 
Young Tom threw that completely to the wind. He was unbelievably aggressive. He'd swing so hard that his hat would fly off, which the galleries loved. And here's a quote from the Reverend William Proudfoot, who described it after seeing him play. He said, quote, Tommy was the embodiment of masterful energy. Every muscle of his well-knit frame seemed summoned into service. He stood well back from the ball and with a dashing, pressing, forceful style of driving, which seldom failed, sent the ball whizzing on its far and sure flight, end quote. The word you hear to describe his style of play is revolutionary. He went for broke as a matter of principle, and he was so good that it worked almost all the time. He changed the way people use clubs, too. He would use a rut iron, which was literally designed for when you had to get the ball out of a rut, like a wheel rut or a ditch. He'd use that for approach shots from a clean lie because of its loft, which essentially means he imagined the short wedge even before it truly existed. And he was a phenomenal putter, which actually differentiated him from his father, who, as good as he was, was known for getting the yips. And along with the attitude and the skill, one thing we have to mention again, there will be some pretty prominent examples to come, but young Tom, more than anyone who had ever played the game, had this ability to produce something really special in really big moments, the kind of thing you hear about again with Seve that we see with Tiger Woods. Even Spieth might be a good comparison. Spieth is always so interesting to me because even when he's not playing that well, you know, the guy is somehow always holding out from a bunker or burying a long putt or doing something where in combination with his personality, you almost start to believe there's an aura around him. That was young Tom. He had that. To the point that decades later, his contemporaries, who were old men by this point, if they were asked, well, you know, was he as good as... Some of the modern guys like Harry Varden or any of the other stars, to a man, they would all say, no, he was better. Nobody was as good as young Tom. Andre Kirkaldi, who is younger than him, grew up in St. Andrews watching him and became a great golfer and a big figure in St. Andrews golf in his own right. He said, quote, young Tom had the gift of golf like no man I ever knew. It is my honest opinion that he was just a golf genius. End quote. Put all of this stuff together and you have the ingredients of a guy who's about to become massive. Here's what Stephen Proctor said. He wrote, quote, It wasn't simply the scoring that struck fear into the hearts of other golfers. It was Tommy's cocksure attitude. Tommy's intensity is palpable in nearly every photo ever taken of him. His is the fierce, almost arrogant stare of a player who never once doubted his supremacy, not even as a boy posing with his elders at Perth. All of this added up to a celebrity status previously unknown in golf, even by his father. End quote. Now, it goes without saying, all this stuff is only as good as the results you actually post on the course. And I'm not going to go through, you know, his entire career tournament by tournament. Proctor actually does document that at the end of his book. Every single known tournament he ever played, every known match, foursome singles, anything we have any record of, he puts it all together, which is a great thing to have. And the statistics are incredible. Of the 27 tournaments he entered in stroke play, he won you know 52% of them. In singles matches, he won 20, lost 9. In foursomes matches, he won 16, lost 8. If you take it all together, the guy is winning at an unbelievable rate for his entire life, somewhere around 60%. And sure, let's take a moment at least to keep this in context. This is a sport that doesn't have a global presence yet. Sometimes in tournaments, he's competing against 10 other people. Granted, they're the best players in the world, but the world at that time in golf is a pretty small one. And there's this tendency in sports, especially in sports media, to want to compare people across the ages, across the decades. I'm somebody who goes the other way. I don't even think you can compare Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods with any degree of accuracy. You know, they're only a couple years apart. Young Tom and Tiger would be about 150 years apart. To me, that's ridiculous. So I don't want to go there. But nor do I want to downplay what he achieved and how good and how revolutionary he was. One interesting thing Proctor told me, and I'm going to quote him here, he said, You know, I must say I was especially pleased last summer when Presswick recreated the old 12-hole links and Tommy's score of 47 stood up even against modern clubs and balls. That reinforced what my research has shown. He was a very great golfer. By age 18, young Tom had tied the course record at St. Andrews. That record was 79. Remember, they're playing with some truly remedial equipment back then. In 1867, he was 16 years old. 
and that year in September, he competed in Carnoustie in a tournament with a purse of 20 pounds, which is huge. Best players in the world were there. It was a 10-hole course then. Obviously, Carnoustie became an 18-hole course. They play the Open on it now. Old Tom was actually the one who expanded that. But this was a three-round tournament, and after those 30 holes, young Tom was tied with a player named Bob Andrew and with his father's old nemesis, Willie Park. They came back for a 10-hole playoff. The older men were the heavy betting favorites at that point. In fact, even old Tom was recorded saying his son was probably too young to handle that kind of pressure. Well, young Tom raced out to an early lead, shot a 42 for those 10 holes, which again at the time was beyond incredible. Bob Andrew had a good day. He was only four shots behind. And Willie Park was so thoroughly beaten that he didn't even finish his round. That was young Tom's first professional victory. And the next day, almost as if Willie Park and his backers wanted to set the universe right again, they arranged a singles match between Park, who was the reigning Open champion, and young Tom. But if what they wanted was a little revenge, they didn't get it. Young Tom beat him 8-7. and seven. And what he did there that week at Carnoustie was so astounding to so many people because of his age, mostly, that the next week at the Open Championship at Presswick, the odds makers were in total confusion because they still didn't really know who this 16-year-old kid was. And it threw them in disarray because if he could do what he did at Carnoustie, how can you give good odds to Willie Park or Old Tom or any of the guys you thought were the favorites? Old Tom kept a scrapbook about his son, saved all the newspaper clippings he could find and there's a quote from one newspaper that week that said the cognoscenti were in perplexity not knowing whom to back you know as it happened old tom won that event it was his fourth and final open championship and now may be a good time to mention the relationship between father and son you know sometimes you find this in history a little bit of a strain between generations when a family is in transition where the father works hard to make a better life for himself, you know, than his own father had. In this case, you know, old Tom's dad was a poor weaver. And then to make an even better life for their children. And it worked. Again, young Tom, more educated, a little bit more worldly, more sophisticated, even than the father who had made, you know, so much of himself. But it appears from all records that theirs was actually a very strong and even loving relationship. You know, young Tom was not embarrassed by his dad or anything, and the old man wasn't, you know, hey, this young whippersnapper is entitled. There's nothing like that. There was a closeness, a security there, and they were constantly playing together. In fact, young Tom actually lived with his family home almost to the end of his life, and at the very end, he would move back there. So in 1868, young Tom turned 17, and if the year before had served as the clarion call that, hey, a new golfer is on the scene, and you may want to pay attention, 1868 was a year where, for lack of a better expression, he blew people's minds. He won almost everything he touched. Singles matches, foursomes matches, stroke play events. His celebrity grew with every passing victory. Thousands of people already were coming to watch him at times. And there are all these references in newspapers or later accounts, a lot of them very oblique because of, you know, decorum, but they were all essentially saying the same thing, which is that women loved him. The women were showing up. They were fighting to get to the front of the crowds. His air of dashing bravado, you know, held great appeal to the opposite sex. Whether he took advantage of that, we don't know. Probably not. These were different times, but that's the kind of info you don't get. At the Open Championship that year, he opened with a 51 on Presswick's 12-hole course. That was an open record. It was actually broken a round later, both by Old Tom and Willie Park. They shot 50s, but in the third and final round, Young Tom did them one better again, and he shot a 49. To put this in context... A 49 in the open was almost unimaginable and certainly was under the intense pressure he would have been feeling while trying to win his first, you know, Moroccan red leather belt, to win his first major as we think of it now. And to do that at 17, to become the youngest major winner ever, which by the way is still a record, is held up for a good 150 years and change. You don't need me to tell you all of this is pretty astounding. Young Tom that year breaks the open total scoring record by eight shots. He beat his father's best score at Presswick by nine shots. And by the way, his dad finished second. This is the only time a father and son finished one and two in a major. I can't imagine that ever happening again. Unless maybe Charlie Woods gets really, really good really fast. 
And now, as you might imagine, at this point, young Tom is raking in the money from all the matches that are set up. He's a major champion now. There is a huge appetite for young Tom Morris in the world of golf. And he's quickly becoming wealthy, especially by the standards of the average Scottish worker of the time. Young Tom had a friend named Davy Strath who was on the path to being a law clerk. He hated it. He saw what young Tom was doing, and that gave him the courage to drop everything and become a professional himself. And when I say a professional, in this case, I mean it in the modern sense. A person who plays golf for money, and that's it. Strath would go on to become one of young Tom's great rivals. He was the kind of player who would have won more than a share of opens if he didn't have a propensity to choke under pressure. That was his weakness, but he became a pro and he thrived. And at this time, young Tom's confidence is growing too, and that very strong sense of self, shall we say, according to Proctor, it starts to rub some people at the RNA the wrong way. They don't like that he carries himself as though he's an equal to an actual gentleman. But the power of young Tom is that it doesn't matter. His appeal is so wide and he's so good that these crusty old types at the RNA, their opinion can't really touch him. He's a hero, and when they're in his presence, even they can't help but admire him and treat him like a star. Think about that, what a drastic change that represents. Young Tom and his friend Strath, they even formed their own club. It wasn't a gentleman's club, but it was a club for their class of educated, you would almost say middle-class people. In so many ways, they were circumventing this power structure, which, even for his father, had kind of been the ruling authority and kind of held them down over the years. The next year's Open Championship in the first round, the eighth hole, which is what you call today a par three, 166 yards in front of the largest contingent of the gallery who were following young Tom around like the superstar he was becoming. And I want to note here that the, you know, the good idea of having a rope to hold the gallery back, that was in the future. This kind of gallery would get right up in your face. You know, think today how it looks when a player goes into the rough and they have to move everybody and the gallery's all around them and they make a narrow little alleyway to, for them to shoot through. That was every shot at these tournaments, whether you were in the fairway or not. And they weren't quiet. I think we mentioned that before. Under these conditions, on the eighth hole, young Tom made the first ace in major championship history. Remember what we said about the magic in him, the ability to produce these special moments. You've got to love the write-up in the air advertiser where the writer says, quote, Curiously, the station hole was made by him in one stroke. End quote. That's one way to describe an ace, right? He shot a 50 in that first round got out to a big lead, stumbled in the second round a little bit, and then in a fierce driving wind, he shot a 52 in the final round and beat everyone else in the field by 11 shots. And that was two, two open championships. 1870, the next year, was one of those years where it seems like young Tom said, you know, if you thought I played well in 68 or 69, well, just wait till you see what I've got in store for you now. In the professional tournament at St. Andrews, he tied Bob Ferguson tied him again in an 18-hole playoff round, and then, in a second-hole playoff round, he demolished every tournament record at the course and shot a 77 to win. His friend Jamie Anderson did point out to the local newspaper, hey, I shot a 77 there too a couple weeks ago, but that wasn't in tournament conditions. That wasn't for a title. And funnily enough, his opponent that day, Ferguson, and his good friend Anderson, those two would later combine for six Open Championships between them. That year, of course, he had the opportunity to claim the Open Championship belt permanently by winning it for a third consecutive time, something his dad almost did, but couldn't quite pull off. The first hole at Presswick is called the Back of the Cardinal. It's 578 yards. Considering the distances of the time, it's appropriate to think of it as a par 6, or at least many people would argue that, and it makes sense to me. The first round that you're at the Open Championship, again, with a massive gallery of thousands at his back, young Tom makes a three by holding out from the fairway. This is his first hole, as he's pursuing what would be the greatest achievement in golf history up to that point. And you can argue about this endlessly, but considering, again, the clubs of the day, if you think of it as a par six, he just made the first albatross in major championship history. Either way, he finishes that round with a 47 Presswick record, an open championship record. Helps when you make an albatross, right? And rather than being nervous or getting off to a slow start as he's pursuing this incredible goal, it's clear that he has not only embraced his destiny, but the magic that he seems to carry with him everywhere has come along for the ride. 
He follows that 47 up with a 51 and then another 51. He wins by 12 strokes. The belt is his. 19 years old. His legend, his celebrity are through the roof. Covered, as we said, in every major newspaper in England and Scotland. All the magazines. Even the Ladies Home Journal is writing about young Tom at this point. Something interesting happens then. The fact that young Tom won the belt, he got to bring it home and keep it. Along with the increasing push from St. Andrews and Musselburgh to have an open rota to be included among the sites, this led to the famously stodgy RNA taking forever to decide what to do to the extent that they didn't get their act together in order to even have an open championship the next year. 1871, there's no tournament. Only other times in history that ever happened is during the two world wars. Finally, the next year they agreed to a rotation. They commissioned the Claret Jug. And in 1872, young Tom comes back and wins his fourth straight open. Probably would have been five, you have to think, if they had managed to hold one the year before. That trophy, the Claret Jug, was not ready for him by the time they played. But when it was ready, the first name they engraved on it, the name that remains there today, was Tom Morris Jr. So his wins at Presswick, especially the third one, were so widespread in a way that might be hard to understand today, but so important that they had a few interesting effects. First of all, it sped up the acceptance and eventually the predominance of stroke play as the major format in golf. It was a way to have all these great golfers compete against each other at once, and this was the start of the ebb of what you might think of as the match play era. Second thing, again, it amplified young Tom's superstardom. It raised the profile not just of him, but of golf in general, and specifically of his fellow pros. This superstar culture didn't really exist before him, and now it was starting to blow up because people all over were becoming more and more interested. And when people get interested in things, they get interested in the people who are very good at it. And then they become stars. Winning the belt sends golf into the stratosphere for fans, for players, and especially for gamblers. Who again, they're, you know, they're the ones driving a lot of this. And it turned the attention in the golf world definitively away from the amateurs to the pros. Doesn't mean there are no good amateurs in the future. You know, Bobby Jones still exists, of course. But from this point on, they tend to be the anomalies. And the third big thing was the spread of golf. First to England, okay, because young Tom is... His celebrity is so great that he's frequently invited to play at places like Hoylake near Liverpool. Hoylake in particular was an incredibly ambitious club pushing the game all across England. Still around today, of course. They're hosting this year's Open. And he would go there and other courses like that. His celebrity kind of speeds this up. More courses are built. It gets to the point eventually where England, you know, this is years in the future, but eventually England with its much larger population base is going to become the dominant force in golf. But guess what? You know, history of all kinds tells us to enjoy our time at the top because it probably won't last long. These Scots and these English who love golf so much, they travel. They bring the game with them where they go. To India, South Africa, Ireland, India, China, and where else? Well, the United States. And it seems like England reaches the mountaintop. You know, they stretch out their arms. They enjoy the view. And by the time they look down again, America is right on their heels and very soon to overtake them. Young Tom, and his third win at Presswick especially, plays a massive role in what you can only call an acceleration of all these factors. And what he didn't know and what nobody knew is that by 1872, when he wins his fourth Open Championship, age 21, his greatest golfing achievements are already behind him. He keeps winning, don't get it wrong. He wins challenge matches, he wins stroke play events, his profile is rising all the time. But in 1873, he loses the Open Championship by four shots to a player named Tom Kidd, who grew up watching him in St. Andrews. The next year, he loses to Mungo Park, Willie Park's brother, by two shots. And that was the last Open Championship he ever played. The story of young Tom Morris is beautiful and aspirational and triumphant right up until the moment when it's not. And that moment comes far sooner than anyone could have expected. In 1873, he fell in love with a woman named Margaret Drinnen. She was a coal miner's daughter, worked as a housemaid at St. Andrews, and this relationship was unique for a couple reasons. First off, she was 10 years older than young Tom. Second, earlier in her life in her hometown, 
she had had a child out of wedlock, which obviously in that time and place was a big deal. She was desperate then to have the child baptized. She had to go through an ordeal that was equivalent basically to public humiliation to have it done. But the church did take pity on her, probably in part because her child, a daughter named Helen, was ill and destined to die two weeks later. And how much of this anybody knew in St. Andrews is a matter of debate. You would think at least young Tom knew, but who knows? Maybe she kept it from him. Maybe she was able to. What we do know is that this was not considered a worthy match socially for young Tom. You know, if there's anybody ever who had the chance to marry up or marry way up, it was this guy. Proctor writes, quote, More than anything Tommy had ever done, more than setting his own terms and foursomes with gentlemen, more than impertinently behaving as if he were equal to the lords of the RNA, marrying Margaret demonstrated his utter disregard for the conventions that governed Victorian society. Tommy loved Margaret, and that was that. End quote. There's some irony there, isn't there? The gentleman would get mad at him for acting above his station. But there's also something unforgivable about marrying below his station. And I agree with Proctor. I don't know if there's a better window into his soul, into the soul of young Tom, than this marriage. Shows you exactly what he thought of somebody else's rules. Old Tom never wrote a thing about it, but it seems like he and his wife Nancy, who by that point was an invalid, she suffered from rheumatoid arthritis, Seems like they did not attend the wedding. Old Tom did throw a party for him, but there's other signs too. Young Tom's older brother, Joff, didn't serve as his best man. That would have been a tradition. And there were a lot of these little traditions that weren't observed. His younger brother, John, actually came to serve as best man. John was born with a hip injury that, one of those things that today would be no problem, they'd fix it instantly, but it made him essentially a paraplegic. He couldn't walk. Young Tom's sister, Lizzie, came to the wedding. She, by the way, had married up in a big way. Her husband was massively wealthy in the American timber industry, and it was her money in the end that would make the Morrises permanently rich when her husband died. But beyond John and Lizzie, none of the other family seems to have attended, and you can infer from that that, you know, this was frowned upon, this match. So young Tom and Margaret married. They moved into their own home, and late in 1874, she became pregnant. The baby was due the next fall. When that next fall came, young Tom traveled with his father to take on Willie and Mungo Park at North Berwick. This was a massive match. All of them were open champions. The timing wasn't great for young Tom because of the pregnancy, but it's worth keeping in mind that it wasn't abnormal then for a father to be away when his child was born. And obviously they didn't know, of course, when it would happen. Young Tom won the professional tournament that was held just before the match. And on the 11th of September... The, the big match, the one everybody came for, was underway. Huge galleries showed up as usual. The event was hyped in all the newspapers. The fans were apparently in terrible form, if you believe the accounts. There was a little bit of bad blood between the Parks and Morrises at that point. And anybody who wrote about this, about the actual golf, they all agreed it was very bad. This was not the, you know, the best showing of their relative skill. The Morrises won by a hole. And after they finished, a messenger came and delivered a telegram to young Tom. Telegram said that the labor was going poorly. Margaret was apparently desperately ill and they should come home, quote, with all possible haste. Now, by that time, it was 4 p.m. And getting home was no easy matter, but they had a stroke of luck when a wealthy man offered to sail them across the Firth of Forth in his yacht. But even then, they'd be sailing in the dark and it would take about eight hours to get home. So at this point, I want to bring up something that's a little controversial which is that there are accounts out there which say that young Tom got this telegram not at the end of the match, but with two holes remaining in the match and that he and his dad decided to finish out anyway. You could go read that right now on Wikipedia, for instance, and you can find it in various other places. But this is not the story that Stephen Proctor tells, and when I spoke to him, he was adamant that it was wrong. Here's what he said to me, quote, Those reports are not correct. David Malcolm and Peter Crabtree, authors of Tom Morris of St. Andrew's Colossus of Golf, obtained the telegrams and described in their book the actual times of arrival. Their book is the absolute authority on such matters. They researched it for 17 years in painstaking detail, and before writing mine, I discussed this exact point with Peter, as I had read the same information you apparently came across. End quote. Now, even if it were true, and I believe Proctor that it's not, but even if it were, it's understandable, I think, that he would finish the match. Because, you know, what are you going to do at that point? But... 
by modern sensibilities, there's just something a little off there, something you don't quite like. But it appears, you know, for the record, the accurate historical record, he got the telegram after the fact, and they set sail as soon as they could. And the minute they did, the minute the ship was off, they weren't even past the mouth of the harbor when a second telegram came. And this telegram said that Margaret had given birth to a son and that both the mother and the son were dead. And I try to put myself in the position of the person or the people who received this telegram. The accounts of the time say that the ship was still so close that they could have shouted. You know, they could have brought them back. They could have hailed them. But whoever had it, they decided that, quote, the shock to the unhappy husband would be too great, end quote. And they let him sail off without saying a word. He got home late that evening. A reverend was at his house to break the news. And later that reverend wrote about the night. He said, I will never forget the poor man's stony look. Stricken was the word. And how all of a sudden he started up and cried, it's not true. I have seen many sorrowful things, but not many like that Saturday night. End quote. The open was held three days later. Neither young Tom nor his father attended. Willie Park won his fourth and final open. There aren't many written accounts of young Tom's life after that point. We do know three weeks later his friends arranged a match hoping to lift his spirits. But he looked listless. He lost. Later he played a match with his father and gave up a late lead. But there were signs in that match that maybe he was getting some of his fighting spirit back. He moved back in with his parents. In November of that year, he played this bizarre challenge match against an amateur from England. That was played in the snow at St. Andrews. They were actually shoving off little circles near the green, near the tee areas. Young Tom tried to stop the match, but his opponent wouldn't agree. Young Tom won, but he looked ill, especially toward the end. That match ended on December 7th. The few accounts you have after that, his friends seemed to think he looked sick. He looked depressed. He took a trip to Edinburgh that maybe seemed to lift his spirits a little bit. On Christmas Eve, back in St. Andrews, he had dinner with a few friends. He came home late. He went in to speak to his mother, who again was now bedridden. He went up to his own bedroom in the attic. His father came and said goodnight to him. That was their tradition. And in the morning, on Christmas Day, when he didn't come down for breakfast, they sent up a maid. She quickly called for old Tom, and they found young Tom Morris dead in his bed with a trickle of blood around his mouth. There was some controversy about the cause, but at the time it was diagnosed as an aneurysm in the right lung. He was 24 years old. The aftermath of his death was sad in some ways, uplifting in other ways. A massive monument was commissioned three years later that you can still see in the St. Andrew's Cemetery. Poems were written for him. The funeral was huge, lots of people attending. And old Tom lived on. A year after young Tom died, the suffering of his wife Nancy came to an end. She passed away. He watched a granddaughter pass away. He watched all his children die. His son John died at age 34. Lizzie passed away in 1898 with pneumonia. Joff died of rheumatoid arthritis in 1905, just like his mother had. But old Tom lived on and on, and he had his moments of great happiness. He became the most revered figure in golf. The image now you see of him as an old man with a long flowing beard, kind of the patron saint of St. Andrews. That's what he became. And in some ways he still is that man, but he also, to put it mildly, had his share of human suffering. His son, young Tom, at the end here, we can say his life was brief. It was spectacular and it was transformative. His otherworldly talent, his ambition, it affected people in an acute way. It certainly changed golf forever and it was over quickly. He was in some ways... Jack Kerouac's Roman Candle. He burned bright and he burned fast. And Proctor in his book makes the point again that this is someone who deserves to be remembered in living color as a human being for good, bad, and otherwise and not to be lost to history, not to be a name in a Wikipedia list, not to be forgotten. It would have been impossible for old Tom to forget him. There are these heartbreaking details sprinkled throughout, you know, the scrapbook he kept of all young Tom's achievements. You can imagine him looking at that. After his son passed, he took the red leather Moroccan belt that young Tom had won at the Open Championship, and he kept it in a prominent place in his house. And if new people came by, he'd take it out to show them. Even if they didn't ask, he had total pride in it. 
when he finally passed away, his grandchildren donated it to the RNA and said it was his most prized possession. It's not hard to see that belt as his last tangible connection to his son. And it's in these details sometimes that you can see the enormity of the loss. And maybe this is what takes young Tom from being a symbol buried deep in the past and makes him real. As you might imagine, there was a romantic notion because his death followed so soon after the death of his wife and his son. There was this romantic notion that he died of a broken heart. It became a thing that was often said. And that wasn't right, obviously. There was a medical explanation for it. And among the people who were not particularly fond of this metaphor was old Tom himself. We'll come to our end here with a passage from Proctor about young Tom's funeral when the great champion was laid to rest. He writes, Over the years, the story that would be woven into the legend of young Tom was that he had died of a broken heart. But at that moment in the cathedral churchyard, old Tom endured a loss so profound that he never gave the slightest credence to that notion. If that was true, he would say many times afterward, I wouldn't be here either. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried, with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. The music you heard today is Towards the Horizon by Alexander Nakarada. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got two others for you to check out, too. One, Golf Digest Weekly Podcast, that's called The Loop. And the brand new podcast on golf instruction with Luke Curdenine, that's called Golf IQ. Thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful day.